What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Words are a pretty important part of our world. We use them to communicate and engage with the world around us in very important ways. It's important as part of this communication to have a large bank of words at our disposal. Building and having a large vocabulary is important for kids as they learn to read and write. But having a big vocabulary is also important for children as they learn to identify and engage with their emotional world, too. To be emotionally literate, children and adults need a large bank of emotional vocabulary. Understanding words that represent a wide range of emotional states helps us to see the world in new ways and gives us the nuances we need to really understand and engage in the wide range of complex relationships we have as human beings. Children need words to express emotional states. This vocabulary should go well beyond the basics of sad, mad, and glad to convey subtleties such as afraid or surprised, or even more specific words like calm, curious, quizzical, or rebellious. These words are important for us as we interact with others, but they are also important parts of emotional regulation, which means that not only can children use this vocabulary to express how others are feeling, but also to express how they are feeling. The good news is that just like we teach other vocabulary words, we can also teach emotional vocabulary. For me, one of the great ways to teach emotional vocabulary is to use books. As we read and interact with characters in books, we can use the illustrations to help children look for nonverbal cues of emotion and then prompt them to express in a wide range of words what a character is feeling. Identifying and pointing out the words an author uses to express feelings is also a great way to learn new words, too. So here at Rachel's World, we suggest that next time you are reading with your children, why not use that time to build a little emotional literacy as you find words that will build your child's emotional vocabulary. Our first guest today on Worlds Awaiting has a real hankering for speculative fiction. So just what is speculative fiction? Well, let's speculate. It could be science fiction or fantasy, or maybe space opera, steampunk, or cyberpunk. Let's include any story you care to add from among the many superhero stories, and dystopian fiction or horror, if you have the stomach for these. The list goes on. David John Butler's career in writing springs from his childhood love of just such genres. He talks to Rachel about his work and passion as an author of speculative fiction for readers of all ages. His publications include two series, The Extraordinary Journeys of Clockwork Charlie and Witchy Eye. He also performs with the Space Balrogs, a troupe of authors and artists who attend sci-fi and fantasy conventions, where they lead entertaining audience participation games. Here's Rachel with David John Butler. We're in studio today with Dave. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Rachel. I am excited to introduce you to my listeners today. So first off, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what it is you write. So it's very complex and very interesting. So I'm excited to hear you describe what it is that you write. Well, I write science fiction and fantasy for uh, readers of all ages. Um, I think we're really going to talk about books for younger readers today. 
So uh, one of the things I think that really distinguishes what I write is a certain kind of uh, world building. I write. I like to think that I write adventure stories and stories that are that are smart. Um, I believe that you get the reader. You earn your readers. You get the reader you write for. And if you write a reader who wants to be condescended to or have her hand held the whole time, that's who you're going to get. I don't want that reader. I mean, I'm happy to have any reader, but I want smart readers who are excited and 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 uh, and and feel like they want to live in the world. So a certain kind of world building that's really uh, densely connected with the real world um, and and really rich. And I would agree totally. Having read your books, I can see that kind of rich world building. So you really are targeting a, a specific kind of reader who is loves this world building, loves science fiction, loves that kind of element. So why is it that you like to write that kind of thing? What What is it that attracts you to the science fiction, fantasy, complex world building? Yeah, you you write the books uh, that you wish you could read, or maybe the, which you wish you had read when you were uh, a kid. You know, the the thing that turned me on to not just writing ultimately, but really on to reading was when I was seven years old. My dad, he was a professor, uh, and he'd go on uh, go to conferences and come back and give and give little presents. And for the first time, he gave me books, and he gave me. The 25th anniversary Silver Jubilee edition of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit with the Daryl K. Sweet covers. And, uh, and I, I didn't leave my bed except to go to the bathroom and eat for a week while I read those, right? I was a little kid, seven, eight years old. Uh, and, and in a way, uh, I write because that's the kind of thing I want to recapture, stories that are stories uh, of adventure that create new mythologies that connect with the real world. You know, Tolkien was – Profoundly English and also deeply Catholic, and his books are too, and and that are and that are fun, that are immersive. That particularly for me is one of the keys, particularly for younger readers, and particularly for this area that you you target more of the middle grade, so like sixth, seventh, eighth graders. They really need to be captured. They're not going to sit back and say, "Okay, I'm going to read this book," and if it's totally boring, they're just going to not not read it. So I love this sense that you bring this sense of adventure and mystery even to a certain extent into your work. Is is this something that you plan out as you're writing? Because your your works are really complex with lots of different elements and lots of different characters. So how do you start out? How do you plan for one of your books? That's a really good question. I, um, I find that every book starts with uh, – with here's a here's a metaphor a feather from heaven okay a, 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 a revealed thing a thing that the muse gives you okay but it's only one thing and it's incomplete and it might be anything it might be an idea for a certain character where you say it would be interesting uh, to write about about a girl who is eight years old and she is uh, killed she's murdered and then she solves her own murder and becomes a superhero right then that's that's what I, I start with. So you start asking yourself questions. Well, uh, what kind of nemesis would this person have? What are the obstacles? What, what are the challenges being dead? How do you fight evil when you're dead? How do we, how do we introduce this character, right? Uh, what does this character's normal world look like? What kind of rupture can there be with the normal world? Those are, those are all mechanical craft questions, right? Like a, like a car mechanic saying, what can cause a pinging sound uh, when the engine is going? Well, he, right? So what I try to do from there is – I outline. There's this perennial question, you know, do you outline 
Around here, the phrase is, are you, are you a plotter or a pantser? I don't know whose language that is. <laughs> I'm not sure I like it. It feels awkward. But the other metaphor is, are you a, are you a builder or a gardener? Right? Do, you, do you build with like bricks or do you plant things and see what happens? Uh, I'm both. I'm somewhere in between. So what I try to get to first is a plot outline that focuses on characters. And then I start outlining. I take that and outline by chapters. You know, I know from the front how long – this is all craft. I know how long my book's going to be so I know that – look, if the book's going to be 300 pages long, I know that by the time I'm 50 pages in, certain things have to have happened. So I'll take my graph uh, of the individual plot strands and then arrange them to fill out the first 50 pages. Uh, usually that's about what I have when I start writing the book. I have sort of the first act, the first part pretty well outlined. I know where the – Middle is where the sort of terrible disaster, the the, the movie structure, uh, end of Act Two, right, uh, and how it ends, and then there's a lot of white space in my in my mental map, and I'll start writing, and the outline will grow ahead of me. I'll go, okay, I'm now in Chapter Three, and now I know what Chapter Six and Seven have yeah. to do, right? That is extremely fascinating to me. And I love how you focus on the sense that this really is problem solving. And I don't think a lot of people realize how much of writing is problem solving. It's critical thinking and problem solving. One of the things I love about your books, I'm thinking particularly of Clockwork Charlie, because those books, he gets into some pretty sticky situations. And he's a plucky, a plucky character that really thinks critically about what he's going to do and how he's going to get out of these situations. So how do you help that happen? How do you think through those problems and solve those issues? Yeah. There's a, there's a sort of a from the, from the front end and from the back end, and you sort of do both. Uh, from the front end, you can ask questions like, what's the worst thing that could happen to this kid right now? What would be really bad to happen to this kid? What would be hard? Right? What would – and uh, I've heard Jim, the author Jim Butcher talk about his creative process for writing his Harry Dresden series is, is uh, what could happen to Harry Dresden on the worst weekend of his year, right? Uh, the back-end way to think about it is uh, you are – you're also trying to – Build plot arcs and growth, and, uh, and well, I'll give, there's a little spoiler. There's some spoilers here. Uh, I I, uh, I apologize, uh, but you're, if you're an adult listening, your kid won't know this. So yeah, still so they, the kids can still go. read the books. <laughs> uh, so the thing about the, the the about Clockwork Charlie, Kidnap Plot is book one. Uh, is is Charlie is an automaton and does not know it. And so the, the plot is his father is kidnapped. Charlie is really a prototype weapon. And so he goes to rescue his father. That's the main plot. But along the way, one of the key subplots is his understanding and acknowledging the way he differs from other kids. And so from the back end, the question becomes what kinds of things can happen to this kid that can make him begin to realize that he is an automaton in what way can he acknowledge he's an automaton in order to win in the main plot? So along the way, there's a moment, for example, when to escape from prison, someone needs to volunteer to swim out a, uh, a little tunnel. Uh, and and we, we find out that Charlie can hold his breath for five yeah. – from apparently indefinitely, which, which he doesn't understand is, is, is not normal. And then, and, and then I won't give it away, but at the end, there is a moment where he has to come to terms with the fact that he's, he's made of metal – to be able to rescue himself and his friends 
uh, out of a dungeon and go to rescue his dad. So that's so that's so I asked the, I got there by asking at the end, hey, what kinds of things? What could he do to save the day by admitting he's a robot? Yeah. That scene that you were describing when he's swimming through the tunnel is one of my favorite pieces of the book because it really brings together a lot of these feelings and ideas that you're working towards. And it felt very pivotal to me in, in the book because it, it was that start of that transformation that you're talking about. And I love I love the characters you build. And how you make them so rich. I mean, Charlie jumped off the page for me. He felt like he was he was going to be my friend someday, right? I, I, I would like him as my friend. So do you think that was, you think, your characters, particularly as you're building them for young readers? Do you try, how do you bring them to life? How do you make them those kinds of people that we would want Charlie as our friend? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I think the, the uh, two things. Well, one, the most basic question about any character is, what does this person want and why can't they have it? Because that's, that's the reason in a story why they act. So that's in my beginning craft as I'm creating plots. That's, that's what I'm doing. Here's this character, Bob. Bob wants to be a famous aeronaut. Why can Bob not do that? Well, for starters, Bob's an orphan and lives on the street. Bob has other challenges. So what a character wants is really important. More interesting than a character's abilities is her weaknesses, the things she can't do. So when I was writing a story about a ghost, you know, yes, there's a part where you say, hey, she's very light and elastic. She can jump through keyholes. She can drift. She can j- fall and is never hurt. What can't she do? She can't be out in daylight. Daylight causes her to sink into the ground. She can't be away from her body very long, right? So that makes a character – that starts to give a character – make it feel like the character is more rounded and not just a hammer to accomplish a tool. There's a book by L. Rust Hills called Writing in General and the Short Story in Particular. And, and it's a pretty good book on writing. The thing that stuck with me uh, – and here I'm going to totally dodge your question and I'm sorry. But, but the thing that stuck with me about that book is he, he said, look – this is a paraphrase. Uh, if we look at ourselves as – I look at myself as a human being. I can't explain why I do everything I do. It follows then that if you can fully explain every single thing a character does, if it's programmatic, if it's predictable, if you, it's just obvious, that, well, they sh- she did that because she hates whatever, then that character is not going to feel like a real there, – there has to be like an element of I can't fully see inside. Yes, all of the actions and the reactions feel right, but I can't open the character up and go – did it because of X, did it because of Y every time. And that, unfortunately, I think that's a thing you do by feel. That's like looking at the chair you made and say, that's a beautiful chair, right? Like there's not a right answer, but I think it's very important. I think it's important too. And that is actually a very insightful way to answer my question. Thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate you breaking down the writing process in such a fascinating way. I love to see how writers work and I know my listeners do as well. And it's interesting to jump in your brain for just a few minutes to see how your writing brain works. So thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Children's book author David John Butler talking about speculative fiction. Next, Rachel welcomes young adult literature expert Terry Lassane. Lassane suggests that grown-ups encourage children to choose their own books, but she also encourages the grown-ups to follow up with some intergenerational discussion. Terry also shares some of her favorite books for kids, including graphic novels. 
Terry Lassane teaches classes in children's and young adult literature in the Department of Library Science at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. She is author of professional books and numerous articles in her field and has served on the selection committees of the National Book Award, the Walden Award, and the Prince Award. Terry Lassane is also author of Reading Ladders. Here's Rachel with Terry Lassane. We're speaking with Terry today. Welcome, Terry. Hi, uh, glad to be joining you. I am just honored to speak with you today. I am very familiar with all your work and all of the wonderful contributions you've made to the field of children's literature, young adult literature, and literacy. It's really pushing boundaries. It's extending things. But I know that there's a lot of people out there, sometimes parents in particular, who are a little worried that the boundaries are going too far. But how do we address those kinds of things when we see some of these really hard things like mental illness or uh, homelessness or other types of things, particularly addressed directly in young adult literature? Well, I, I, I encourage parents to pick up the books and read them. Um, and, and, and kind of check their gut about how they feel about them. Because ultimately, parents do have um, a responsibility and a right to help bring up the kids the way they see fit. Uh, now, having said that, I kind of subscribe to Judy Bloom uh, and her theory. And it was, if my kid wanted a book, I let her pick it up and I trusted her to put it down if it wasn't right. And she's, she's told several stories about that. And I did that with, um, I reared three grandkids in addition to um, two of our own kind of thing. Um, and one day, um, and she picked up Luna uh, by Julianne Peters, which is about a transgender youth. And she says, may I read it? And I said, I haven't read it yet, and I need to, uh, but then you can have it. And... Um, so she kind of read the blurb and everything on the back, and I finished reading it and handed it to her, and she said, I have one question. And I thought she was going to ask me, what, what does it mean to be transgender? And I said, okay, and I'm running, racking my brain. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? How do I explain this? And she said, does this end happily? And I thought, boy, here's a kid who already knows that for a lot of those kids it doesn't end happily, that there's you know incredible trouble there. And she picked it up, and she read it, and I hope she goes back and rereads it, you know, now that she's a little bit older and maybe gets more out of it. But I kind of trusted. Uh, she brought other books back to me and said, nope, just not, just not getting it, not speaking to me. But I always think, I would rather a kid encounter the tough stuff safely within the pages of a book and then follow up with a discussion than to have to experience things in real life. So, I mean, there's not one correct answer here. I know that I have to kind of balance what I think is best for my child, uh, but I can't then say what's best for everybody's kids. That is so insightful. I appreciate that, Terry. It really, it really is just very complex, but I love this sense of trust and discussion. I think those are two of the foundational things that 
that build this relationship that help us to to speak to our kids about some of these tough things. And that that's one of the things I love about the field of young adult literature is I really think it's the field of literature that's kind of pushing the boundaries in a very fundamental way. I don't see that quite as much in adult literature or even in children's literature. So why do you think it's this area of young adult literature that really is kind of pushing into a, a very new realm of what literature is and what it can be? Well, I think probably two things at play here. One is that young adult literature has always been kind of that rebel. Um, You know, it was really born in the 60s during the civil rights movement, protests against war, you know, burning of draft cards. I mean, think the woman's revolution was just getting underway. And so it was born of that. And I think it continues to still kind of be a little bit of that, that rebel. And I also think that the, the new authors that are coming along now are those who have read those early books and have a sense of the history, which I love. So they, they know the Cormier, they know Zendel, they know Hinton, they know those early authors. And they're now taking it one step further and uh, just writing about things where you read it and you just think, oh, my goodness, I mean, let me tell a novel episodically starting and and jumping around in time, like Looking for Alaska uh, did, uh, John Green's first book. Let me do uh, one of these What Would Happen If, uh, like John Corey Whaley's Noggin, if a kid's head was cryogenically frozen and reattached to a new body. What would that be like? Um, and when you think about it, isn't that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein kind of having an influence on contemporary literature? So I see that kind of full circle. But I think part of it is the, the new authors coming in. Noelle Stevenson uh, was a, is, not was, a graphic novelist who was one of the finalists for the National Book Award this year for uh, her graphic novel. And she's in her 20s. And so we're starting to see new authors who... I think take more risks. You know, the, the sky's the limit, and that, that's kind of the, the fascinating thing about being here. But I do think we're going to continue to see, in ways I can't even imagine, the mashing up and the blurring of lines between and among uh, genres and forms and formats. We saw it with Borrowed Names by Jeannie Atkinson, which was a biography of three famous women in verse. Uh, and actually, three, three famous women's daughters. It wasn't even the women. So, uh, you know, you just think, you know, what what led to someone thinking, gee, I want to write a biography, but let me write it in verse uh, and see what I can do with that. Same as, uh, you know, the other people that are pushing boundaries. Just an exciting, exciting time for for young adult literature. Well, as we wrap up this conversation, Terry, just give us one kind of takeaway, what is one thing that you think our listening audience should understand about young adult literature and the role it plays in the lives of children and teens? If we want to grow lifelong readers, which I I think is always what our goal is, whether we're an educator or a parent, we want a child that loves to read and continues to hold on to that love of reading for the rest of his or her life. If we want to do that, then young adult uh, literature plays a huge role because it kind of sustains kids 
through, um, I, I always want to say through the rough waters of high school canonical literature and then um, college required reading. Um, having just graduated, our youngest just graduated from college, and the first thing she did was go and get uh, a public library card so that now she can catch up on the stuff that she didn't have time to read. And I, I want to say that's because she had that grounding, lots of read aloud and picture books when she was little, lots of chapter books when that was appropriate, and tons of YA. Uh, in some ways, she had her own lending library in the house because I've got case after case after case of books. And she's still a reader. She survived that transition from here's everybody telling you what to read to now I can read on my own. And the first thing she wants to do, because she's not wealthy yet, <laughs> is to get the library card because that gives her the key to any book she wants. And if that's what we want our kids to be, then I think that that's the way we do it. We grow them up through books. And young adult literature is a really important transition to the world of adult reading. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Terry. I am just honored to have the time to speak with you today. I've been looking forward to this for weeks and just very much in awe of all that you've contributed to our field and to the discipline. And I'm just very much honored to take the time to talk with you today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I always love to talk about my favorite thing in the world. Young adult literature expert Terry Lassane discussing the role adults can play in a child's reading life. We finish up the show with Tessa Ostvig, world's awaiting social media coordinator, who talks about her love of reading. It began with her mother's influence and later was fostered by a good teacher. These early experiences made her not only a lover of books, but also of words. In fact, to this day, she reads the dictionary on a regular basis. always been a reader absolutely always always um I think my first couple books were Winnie the Pooh you know with every book I read I got to have a stuffed animal so I had a lot of Winnie the Pooh stuff growing up a lot of teddy bear stories and I've always loved stories and I've loved reading books and and being read too especially Oh, so my first grade class was amazing. I loved my teacher, Mr. Larson. He was one of those teachers that you read about in books. He had a, his guitar he would pull out and just engage the kids and just show us how much he loved learning. But I was one of two kids in the black reading group, which is the highest level reading group. And I felt so proud to be, you know, an elite reader, I guess, that it just spurred on my love of reading even more. And the books I was reading were, were a lot more complicated chapter books. And I just loved having more re- more words, more stories, and more in-depth. Because, you know, you always hate it when the book ends. So if the books are longer, it takes a little bit. Your mother read to you, and it wasn't just you, was it? Was it your family? Did you a lot of, do a lot of group, group reading? So my mom is just like me. Um, we always joke about having spelling genes and we play on words, you know, genes and genes. But yeah, so she always read to us. The most memorable was Harry Potter. Um, she read all of those books, every single one out loud to us. And just we had this moment where we were all reading up in my grandparents' cabins. So we were outside on a picnic blanket in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. And we were reading the last book of Harry Potter, and it was just like such a special moment. 
And to this day, like, we have a story that we read on our birthdays, every, everyone's birthday in our family. And it's like not a birthday. We cannot start the birthday festivities until we've read on the day you were born. And, you know, my mom has to read it. I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone else read it. Final question yes. for you, Tessa. What do you think is your mission or your passion in life? I I think my love of words, you know, from all those experiences of reading as a kid and then eventually <laughs> I still read the dictionary. You read the dictionary? I read the dictionary for fun just because I like <laughs> learning new words and I like kind of seeing what how words are used in context and such. Um, and I think I think really words are important and it's kind of led to this this drive, this mission to help everyone understand each other using the right words Um, because we kind of use different words for different people. I've noticed that in our culture and our society so much more and I kind of feel this calling as a word nerd (laughs) to cultivate that and to just really be able to reach as many people as possible using the right kind of communication, using the right words. Tessa Ostvig, World's Awaiting Social Media Coordinator, talking about her love of books and all the words you can find in them. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in weekdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org. <laughs>